0: Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we can come together today to study your word, to be reminded of who you are and to be reminded of who we are in Christ, that we might come to a greater understanding and appreciation for all of the riches, the wealth that we have in Christ, all of the spiritual blessings and benefits that you have revealed to us in your word that we might learn to Uh, appropriate them in our day-to-day life that we might learn to activate those realities and live on the basis of those truths that we might indeed uh, advance and pursue spiritual maturity to spiritual maturity exploiting the resources that you have given us now father we pray that now as we study your word that you might help us to focus to think to reflect and that god the holy spirit will help us to see how these things apply to our own lives And that, as a result, we might continue to pursue spiritual growth and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1942, my father was finishing up his studies at the University of Houston. And like many young men in the United States at that time, he went down to one of the uh, service offices to enlist He went to the Marine Corps uh, recruiter, and he enlisted and was put into a platoon leader's training course, uh, which also allowed for him to uh, complete his uh, college studies and complete his degree in engineering uh, at Georgia Tech. When he graduated from the Marine Corps platoon leader's training course, he was assigned to the 4th Marine Division sent to Hawaii, where he went through uh, very uh, several months of training on amphibious landings in preparation for going somewhere they knew not where in the Pacific. Eventually, they f- discovered where they were going, some little bare, rocky, volcanic bump in the ocean called Iwo Jima. He was in the first wave at Iwo Jima. He was only there for a short time. He said he spent Two nights camping out on Iwo Jima. Never wanted to take me camping. He had had enough. (laughs) Those 48 hours, he was busy. He got two purple hearts, a bronze star, and a silver star. And as a result of that, he will always be identified with that bloody carnage of Iwo Jima. As a result of this nation's gratitude to its veterans, we have what is called the Veterans Administration, the VA, which has supplied many tremendous benefits and resources for those who have served in the military. Those who have uh, Purple Hearts, those who have earned medals of valor, also have other resources available to them, for which I am grateful. Uh, Tremendously grateful because, as many of you know, my father has Alzheimer's, and because of that which has been provided for him uh, through the VA, he has been able to at least have a comfortable existence uh, during these last years of his life. But there's an analogy here that I want to point out in terms of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and our resources. As my father was, was identified with that bloody carnage on Iwo Jima and will always be identified with that, and because of that identification, he has certain resources. So, too, the believer, because of what happens at the instant of salvation, is identified with that bloody carnage that took place on Golgotha, the death of Jesus Christ. And because of our identification with his death burial, and resurrection. We are given an unbelievable, an infinite number of spiritual resources and capabilities that we have to learn to access. I'm surprised how many veterans I run into, older veterans, my father's generation, that are completely unaware of of what they have available to them through the VA. Uh, In the same way, I run into many Christians who are completely ignorant of all that they have available to them in Christ, and rather than living like those who have spiritual wealth, they live like those who are spiritually impoverished. In Colossians 2, Paul is developing for us and for the Colossian church the understanding of what we have in Christ. That he is sufficient for everything. You and I cannot think of anything, not one thing that does not relate to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and what God has provided for us in him. Last week I pointed out that as we get into this, as the Apostle Paul is answering this question of of, of what we have in him, he starts at the basics, the basics in terms of the spiritual life. He does the same thing in Romans. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is explaining to the Romans that now having completed his analysis of justification in chapters uh, 3 and 4 and 5, in Romans chapter 6 he begins to talk about exploiting what we have in Christ because of our identification Uh, with him he starts at the same place there he uses the term baptism the baptism of the holy spirit here he's using the term circumcision the circumcision made without hands he is as we studied last time talking about the same thing he's talking about our christian walk the uh, christian lifestyle how a believer is supposed to live So I want to take you back a little bit. We have some people here this morning who weren't here last week or the week before. And the more I go into this studying it, focusing on the context, focusing on where Paul is headed in this chapter and in the next, I I want to make sure that we don't lose the forest for the trees and we understand exactly what it is that he is saying, that in terms of facing the issues of life, the foundation for that, is in understanding what happens in our identification with Christ in terms of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, our regeneration and the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness that we have in Christ, that as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creatures in Christ. So in Colossians 2.6, this section begins, and I've pointed out, that there is a command here. This is the command that governs this section down through, uh, down th- really through verse 15. It's the first of a number of commands that occur in chapters 2 and 3, but there's not another uh, comm- positive command other than the, there's a negative command in verse 8, but the positive command that governs even that one is that we are to walk in him. That's what this is about. How are we to walk in Christ? How are you to live your life in Christ? And so he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then I've given you a little bit of a clarified or expanded translation because I want to bring out the force of these participles that are here, these four participles that we have in verse 7, because, first of all, you have already been rooted. This refers to what happened at the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, you, we are rooted, using an agricultural uh, metaphor, we are rooted uh, in Christ, and we can't be uprooted. That is permanent. It is a perfect tense participle indicating completed action and focusing on the present results. We are rooted. That happened in the past with the results that go on. And now, having already been rooted, we are being built up. That is a construction growth metaphor. We are building up, we are growing, and by being established, uh, those two terms are used in a somewhat synonymous construction, as I pointed out when we studied that in the Greek, so that the the building up, the strengthening, the edification that takes place spiritually and the confirmation, the establishment together, these two are done And I think especially the second part is indicated as on the basis of our faith by means of the faith. That is the word of God. That is what is taught in the word of God. That is Bible doctrine. It is the faith. It is the content of what we believe. That is the, that is what gives us spiritual growth and confirmation. And then he says, usually most Uh, Translations put that last phrase that I have there, as you were taught earlier, but it really should come at the end because this fourth participle, abounding with thanksgiving, is also another uh, participle that explains that main command of walking. We walk by abounding, and our walk should be characterized by abounding with thanksgiving. So he says, walk in him because you've already been rooted and now by being built up in him and by being established by means of the faith, by abounding with thanksgiving as you were taught. And then we have a warning, the negative command. Verse 8, beware lest anyone plunder you, rob you of understanding what you have in Christ. That's the idea. Cheat you, the New King James says, but plunder is better. Plunder you. Uh, through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, that is Satan's way of thinking, and not according to Christ. Now the rest of this section focuses on what it means to walk according to Christ, to walk in Christ. And verses 9 and 10 focus on what we have in him, using that terminology for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Those first two verses, 6 and 7, give us the foundation for everything else that is said down through the end of chapter 3. We are to walk uh, walk in him, and again and again, there's that emphasis on the in him. Notice that five times... five times I don't know why that animation is doing that but five times we have this phrase in him walk in him we have been uh, rooted and now are being built up in him verse 9 and verse 10 for in him all the fullness of deity dwells and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all uh, rule and authority and in him you were also circumcised it's in him That is our position in Christ. Some people think, well, that's just so abstract. I don't care how abstract it is. It's real. It is profoundly real. That is our identification. It's who we are. Some of you may uh, enjoy investigating your genealogy. You may think that in your background you are German or Irish or Scottish or whatever it may be, and that helps you understand your identity. That's pretty abstract. You've never been to Ireland or Scotland or England or Germany or Scandinavia or Poland or wherever it is that you trace your, your genealogy, but somehow that forms your identity in the, a more profound way our identity is in is in Christ. Now, having said that, in verse 11 and 12 where we were last Sunday, Paul says that in him, and this is the first thing he begins to develop in terms of our understanding of that position, and he uses an unusual way of describing this that is unique to this epistle to the Colossians. And the reason is is because these false teachers that have come in have created this uh this this mix of various religious ideas and into this devil's brew they have mixed uh, ideas of uh, Platonic idealism and uh, Jewish ritualism and legalism. They've also introduced various other ideas from Greek philosophy and Eastern religions. And so Paul has to address that and part of it had to do with this influence of a group of of teachers that tended to follow Paul around and tended to try to counter his teaching by saying you don't really get it all with Jesus and the cross. You really have to be brought under the Mosaic law. We studied this a lot in our study on Thursday night in Romans. You have to be circumcised. Now, that applied to the males because in Jewish thought, the women were sort of second or third class uh, citizens, and so the focus was on the men. And, and in first century Judaism, the entry into the blessings of Abraham was through, through circumcision. If you weren't circumcised, you didn't have anything spiritually. And so for them, the teaching of the Pharisees, everything was based on, on, on circumcision. And so Paul addresses our entry into Christ in contrast to this false teaching of circumcision. He says, in him you were also uh, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That tells us it's, he's not talking about physical, he's talking about spiritual. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he goes on and, in, and tells us what that is like, at beginning of verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised... Him from the dead. Verse 13. When you were dead in your, tra- tra- uh, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he uses that term again. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all transgressions, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now that is brings us to the conclusion of this section, but it's going to take some time to unpack the ideas that are here. This morning we're going to get into the main part of it, which is verses 13 through 15, but I want to review, pick up a few things before we get there. The warning, one verse of warning And that warning rings for all of us because it's so easy for us to let something rob us, plunder us, steal from us the opportunity to exploit what we have in Christ. They can't take that away from us. Nothing can remove our riches in Christ from us other than our own volitional decision to try to do it on our own strength and own power rather than on the basis of what Uh, we have in Christ. So there's that warning, and I paraphrased it for you, expanded the translation a little bit so that it has the, the meaning, the thrust comes across a little better. Paul says, Beware lest anyone plunder your spiritual wealth, that is what we have in Christ, through false empty philosophies of life, of which there are thousands upon thousands, all focusing on the same thing, that is, that somehow we can get get it all, but we don't have to have Christ to do it. Through false, empty philosophies of life, according to the tradition of men, that tradition goes all the way back to Eve's attempt to have life apart from obeying God in the garden. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, which is Satan's world system, and not according Christ. Now this same idea comes across by Paul in a similar passage over in 2 Corinthians. You might wish to just hold your place in Colossians and turn over a few pages to your uh, left to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a great chapter, chapter 11. And there he is also warning about false teachers who have come into Corinth. The first two verses he uses an analogy with marriage. That's sort of the context there. And then he says, but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Now even though Eve was deceived, and even though you and I may be deceived by the false thought systems of the world, that doesn't absolve us of responsibility. We can't stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, oops, you know, I just was deceived. It's not my fault. It's our responsibility to not be deceived. It's our responsibility to know the truth. It's our responsibility to think through things, to be informed scripturally and biblically, and to know truth and to know the characteristics of error so that we are not deceived. And so Paul states to the Corinthians, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, if you're reading from the New American Standard, NIV, ESV, or some of the uh, other uh, uh, translations based on the critical text, it may say simplicity and purity. I don't think and purity is in the original, uh, on the basis of textual evidence. It's really this, and the word simplicity is, is not what we normally think of as simple. It's a more technical use of the term simple. It really means a single-minded focus in the Greek. The word is haplotes and it has to do with having a single-minded focus toward Christ. Unfortunately, in the English, it's translated in Christ, but it's not our familiar phrase of the Greek word preposition in, e, n, plus Christ. It is ace. It is a word, the preposition that indicates focus. That comes out of the illustration related to marriage in the first two verses that talk about the focus on one another within on the husband and the wife within marriage. So there should be a single-minded focus. That's the idea here is that our minds are to have a single-minded focus, and that is toward Christ. And when we put that over with uh, Colossians, what we're studying there is understanding what we have in Christ. So our focus is, is toward Christ. And then in the fourth verse, Paul says, For if he who comes, that is these false teachers, preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit spirit, which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, somebody may come along and deceive you with a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit gospel, and a counterfeit Bible. Now today, the group that is gaining the most traction with a counterfeit uh, Jesus and a counterfeit gospel and a counterfeit Bible is the Mormon Church. They are masters at deception. They are continuously developing their advertising tools and their their commercials and many other things to claim that they are Christian. They are masters more than any other false idolatrous perverted group in the world at using Christian, biblical Christian terminology in non-biblical, non-Christian ways in order to uh, proselytize and to deceive Christians. They draw the vast majority of their converts from evangelical Christian denominations who think that because they use the right words that they mean the same thing. This is particularly, I think, uh, a concern today because you have uh, people on the national stage, people such as Glenn Beck as well as a presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, who are both Mormons. And you should take some time to investigate that. I'm not sure and I'm not saying that because uh, someone is a Mormon that they should not hold public office or be elected to public office. I'm not going in that direction. But what I am saying is that this does influence their, their thinking. And there are many people in this country now, many evangelicals, who do not understand that Mormons are not Christian. Mormons are polytheists. A polytheist is somebody who believes in many gods. One of the little cliches in Mormonism is, as God is, you will be. That means you can be a god. As God was, you are. Well, if God was once a man and then he became God, and if you as a human being can become God, how many gods do you have? You've got more than one. So it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God of Christianity or the God of the Old Testament. And yet in the support of Israel, the political aspect of Christian Zionism, uh, Glenn Beck has become a major player. And among your Jewish friends, they don't have a clue that Mormonism has nothing to do with Christianity. In Israel, they think Glenn Beck's just another Christian Zionist. And unfortunately, there are major national Christian leaders who have made horrible statements stating that Glenn Beck is a Christian, he's a committed Christian. You cannot be a committed Christian and a committed Mormon. You're either an apostate Christian and a committed Mormon, or you never were a Christian and you're a Mormon or you're a committed Christian and you're not a Mormon, but you can't be both. And you have people like, uh, sadly, uh, you have people like John Hagee who has made the statement, and I just found this out about a month ago, and because of the Night to Honor Israel, I said nothing about it because I had made a personal commitment to be involved with that. But a month ago, I was informed that he made the statement that he had spoken with many hours with Glenn Beck and that in his opinion, he was a committed Mormon. I mean, a committed Christian. And he's just wrong and he has been deceived. David Barton, whom I respect in many ways because of his contribution to our understanding of the Christian heritage of this nation, has also said the same thing many times about Glenn Beck. These men are just deceived. But they are deceiving Christians into thinking that someone can be a committed Christian and a committed Mormon. And you need to be aware of that. And you need to be aware that this is going to, this kind of false teaching, as it infiltrates the church, is going to become uh, more the norm than not. And those who stand for the truth of who Jesus Christ is are going to come under attack because we want to draw lines. And these lines are biblical lines, and we can't be sucked into these, this kind of false teaching. So there are those who preach another Jesus. The Jesus of Mormonism is the brother of Lucifer, and they have a father called Elohim. But it is not the Elohim of the Old Testament, and the Lucifer isn't the Lucifer of the Old Testament of the Bible, and the Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Some one of my Jewish friends says, well, how can you say that? How can, how can you say that Mormons aren't Christians they believe Jesus is the Son of God and I said well you have to understand what they mean by son of God they don't mean what the Bible t- what, and what Christians historically have defined as the Son of God they l- use that term as de- as a term of derivation like you would say that Bill Jones Jr. is the son of Bill Jones senior as opposed to the fact that, that what we mean in Jesus as the son of God, that he is eternal deity, he was and always will be fully God, he only later became a man. He wasn't a man first who became God, yet that is, that is the, the Mormon view of who Jesus is. It is another another Jesus. He is a creature. He is not the eternal, everlasting creator. So they preach a false Jesus. So if he who comes preaches another Jesus and we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, I think the word spirit here uh, can have a, a, a definite relation to a, the demons behind the false teaching. You receive a different spirit uh, uh, which you have not received, uh, the contrast would be to the Holy Spirit, or a different gospel that is a works-based gospel, and in the Mormon church it is a works-based gospel. You only get to heaven or get resurrected if you're a male, if you have jumped through all the hoops within Mormonism. And the reason, ladies, that Mormonism uh, uh, promoted uh, polygamy was because women can't get there if the man doesn't say that, doesn't call her forth from the grave. So if you haven't pleased, your husband, you can't get resurrected. And if you have more women than you do men, then all those women have to get married because the only way they're going to get to heaven is if they have a husband that calls them forth from the grave so that they can then become little gods and go off and get their own planet and start the process all over again. This is what they believe. And this is what, if you know, what amazes me is the educated people in this country and who appear to be intelligent, who buy into all of this nonsense. Now, verse 14 and 15 of that chapter, Paul goes on to say, "...and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into the ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works." Unless it doesn't say according to their sins, it's according to their works, because the issue at the Great White Throne judgment is going to be do you have righteousness equivalent to Christ? And all they have to show for it are their works, not the righteousness imputed by Christ. Now, verses 9 and 10, as we studied, tell us that Christ has given us all the, he has all the divine resources. We don't need to look elsewhere for more. You don't need to look to psychology. You don't need to look to uh, various other human viewpoint systems of thought. Jesus has it all because he is fully God, verse 9, and because we are in him, we are complete in him, lacking nothing. All that he has is ours. And this takes us back to, as I pointed out last week in verse 3, to the point that we're to be moving toward all the riches of the conviction from understanding, moving toward the knowledge, the epinosis knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. We have to understand that. That's, that's the focal point. That's what Paul's unpacking here. So in verse 11, he says that it starts by understanding the dynamic that what, of what happened in our identification with Christ At salvation, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Physical circumcision was a physical ritual that was to depict a spiritual reality which was called the circumcision of the heart. Heart circumcision is related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit where the power of the sin nature is broken. Spiritual circumcision was talked about in the Old Testament, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy ten sixteen and 36, as I pointed out in the past. And it is described specifically in verse 11 as putting off. And this is the idea of taking off a suit of clothes, removing your garment. It is something that is completely separated from you, not that you don't still have a sin nature, but that its power is broken completely. You have a choice And you can, no matter how much pressure your little lust pattern puts on you, you have the option to say no. And that's what, but before you were saved, you didn't have that option. You just said, okay, well, I won't go with that lust. I'll go with another lust. But now you have the option to say, no, I'm going to live on the basis of my riches in Christ. So it's putting off the body of the sins of the flesh that is the, that is the sin nature by the circumcision of Christ that makes that break. Now we see this in a chart that's familiar to all of us. That we talk about the Christian life in terms of three phases. We touched on this some Thursday night. I didn't use the chart, but I will again this next coming or this coming one. At phase one, in a moment of time, you trusted Jesus as Savior, and God uh, imputed to you the righteousness of Christ and judicially declared you to be righteous, justified. So now you have what is needed to get into heaven. You have the righteousness of God. That's called positional sanctification. Many, many other things happen at that same point, and those are related to our riches in Christ. And at that instant of positional sanctification, which is what we're talking about, we are freed from the penalty of sin. But then in phase two, that is the spiritual life, because we have been freed from the penalty of sin, we have also had the power of the sin nature positionally broken, and we have to learn how to live experientially as if we're no longer under the tyranny of the sin nature. We have to learn to just say no. I know that's not easy. The solution is simple to express but we all know how difficult it is to apply. That's why we have grace, and when we fail, we have 1 John 1:9 so that we can recover. 1 John 1:9 isn't a license to sin and get away with it. 1 John 1:9 is an opportunity to recover and go forward when we uh, when we fail. Verse 12, as I talked about last time, is parallel to Romans 6 that we how did this circumcision take place? It took place by being buried with him by means of baptism not water baptism, but that which water baptism depicts, which is our baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you haven't uh, heard me teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit was illustrated by John the Baptist when he was baptizing uh, Jewish converts to his gospel, which was the gospel of the kingdom. And he said that there was one who would come after him Though he baptized by means of water, there would be one who comes after him who would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. So the parallel is between John the Baptist baptism by water and Jesus baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's right, I didn't say the Holy Spirit's baptism, because in every place you have the stated one who the stated uh, uh, subject of that verb, it's always Jesus. Jesus performs the work of the baptism, and he does it by means of the Holy Spirit, just as John the Baptist did it by means of water. So what did John do? John would take the convert and take them and plunge them into the water. The water is a, that is a picture of cleansing, and then when they came out of the water. It is a picture that they are now identified with this new state of repentance because what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they're identified with John's gospel of the kingdom. In believer's baptism, Jesus, operating the same analogy, takes the person at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone and he plunges them in the Holy Spirit so to speak, metaphorically, by means of the Spirit. And that action of identification with the Spirit is an action that identifies them by the Holy Spirit's action with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection so that there is complete, total, positional cleansing from sin so that when they come out the other side, all of this takes place instantaneously. When they come out the other side, they are positionally completely cleansed and completely forgiven of all sin in our position in Jesus Christ. So that's why the text says that we are buried with him by means of baptism in which you were also were raised with him. See, we are raised in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, through faith in the working of God. Our faith is in God's work, not our work. And it, just as God was able to bring life where there is death in Jesus' resurrection, so we are given new life in Christ where we were spiritually dead. We're now spiritually uh, spiritually alive. I talked about this last week. Romans 6.4 says the same kind of thing. We were buried with him through baptism into death. And then in Romans 6.6 6 uses that same terminology. Our old man, that is the sin nature, was crucified with him. Also, Galatians 5.24. Now, that's a good review for everybody. And now we get into uh, some of the most important passages that we'll ever understand. I'm just going to skip past these slides. I covered this at the end last week to show what happens here in terms of our identification with Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is called positional truth. But what does that really mean? This is what we're going to see in this next verse In Colossians uh, 2, especially 13 and 14. Now, at the top of this chart, I use the terminology coming out of verse 12. In him, there's no and at the beginning, which some of your translations have. He just continues to punch this reality of what we have in Christ. In him, you were baptized. Every one of you, just like the Colossian believers, at, at the instant of faith alone, you were baptized in Christ, and then it, these, uh, the what words I have in brackets help explain the force of the Greek participles. When you were buried with Him in baptism, uh, by which you were raised together with Him. You're buried with Him in baptism, and it is by that spirit baptism that we are given new life because our positional reality is cleansing and forgiveness. And so we are now raised, what? What's that next word? Together with him. Ephesians 4, 6, 7, and 8 say the exact same thing. We are raised together with him in that identification with Christ. And then verse 13 says, and it just starts off you being dead, which is a rather ambiguous statement. It really means either though you were dead or... Or when you were dead. See, our status before trusting Christ is that we're spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. I don't care how many people think that, oh, I have some kind of wonderful spiritual life. You're dead spiritually. It's non-existent. There's no relationship to God. You're just having a relationship with an idol in your mind. You're not having a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who says that before we can have a relationship with him, our sins have to be dealt with. And they have to be dealt with uh, forensically by Christ at the cross. They have to be dealt with positionally at the instant we trust in Christ as our Savior. And they have to be dealt with experientially when we confess our sins throughout our Christian life. But we're born dead in our, now what does he say here? In our trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh. Ephesians 2 is almost an exact parallel to this, but in Ephesians 2 it uses another term. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why does he say uncircumcision of the flesh here? Because he wants them to understand that, that the issue they're they're pushing is well, you have to be physically circumcised to be saved. And Paul is saying physical circumcision doesn't do what spiritual circumcision does, which would break the power of the sin nature. So it's not just that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. By then you're dead in your sins, it's because you've been you're still uncircumcised spiritually. And there has to be spiritual circumcision, which is the application of the payment of sin to the individual through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just skip over to Colossians 2.13 here. This is what I've been talking about. It should be understood here, since this is a present active participle, it's not just being dead, it has the same time action as the main verb, the main verb he has is he has made alive. So at the instant that Christ made you alive, uh, that God made you alive in Christ, at that instant that he regenerated you, at that instant you were at, in a certain condition. Now, it could be translated possibly as a temporal, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but it is more likely what's called a concessive, which means it's stating a a, a second uh, uh, circumstance, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The emphasis is here is that you didn't need to be, you you didn't automatically need to be or or, or, you didn't automatically... um, uh, God, God was not automatically obligated to make you spiritually alive. This is grace. Though you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, fe- uh, of your flesh. So we have, and I've already covered this, because of that uncircumcision the, being the issue in Colossae, they had to understand that the issue is that they have to be regenerate and identified with Christ so that that power of the sin nature is broken. In Colossians 2.13, we have an exact parallel to Ephesians 2.5 and 6, which I have at the bottom of the screen, that even though you were dead in your transgressions, notice how that's translated. Same way I translated the same terminology in Colossians 2.13. Even though we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's your position. This is our reality as believers, as new creatures in Christ. We are in Christ, seated with him in the heavenlies, with all of the spiritual riches and wealth that is part of the deity of Jesus Christ and of God. It's ours. So he first thing that happens in a logical order, as he makes us alive together uh, with him. He's made us alive together with him, uh, with Christ, and then it says, that having forgiven you all transgressions. Now, what does that mean? This is, so first thing that happens is there's this break with the power of the sin nature, and this is the second thing that is related to this, that is, Crucial to understand, if you're ever going to make it in a Christian life, you have to understand forgiveness. He forgave us of all transgressions. Now, the word here isn't the word we normally think of or use with forgiveness, which is apiemi. It's the word charizomite. It's emphasizing the grace aspect of it. But this word is frequently translated in terms of, of uh, forgiveness because it has to do with, with canceling something. Now, it's an aorist participle. Now, I get into the grammar here because there's a whole series of these participles in these verses that are just translated in a nebulous sort of way in the English, but it's understanding the precision of the Greek that helps us grasp the profound truth that is here. It is an aorist participle, though not The reason this is important is because an aorist participle, the action of a participle, is related to the action of the main verb. If the main verb is present, a present tense, and the participle is present tense, then they happen pretty much at the same time. If the the main verb is present and the the participle is aorist, then that means the action of the aorist participle comes before the action of of the main verb. If the main verb is aorist and the participle is aorist, it can happen at the same time, but it, the action of the aorist participle comes before the action of the, of the aorist verb. And that's what happens here. The action of the, of the verb is he has made us alive. That happened at that point you trusted Christ as your Savior. But something happened before you trusted Christ as Savior and he regenerated you. Before you believed in Jesus, what? He had already forgiven you. When did that happen? Well, this is what's so important about these two verses. I'm going to just back it up real quick to a previous slide. This is what is so important in understanding this this slide. As you look down at the bottom, you probably can't see it there, but in your Bible it's the last phrase in verse 14. It tells you when all this happened. It didn't happen when you trusted in Christ. Now, you were regenerate when you trusted in Christ. But the forgiveness, which is then defined, as we'll see next time in verse 14, as the canceling of the debt occurred when he nailed it to the cross. Now, that could only happen at one time in history. He's not nailing it to the cross when you trust in Christ because the cross is gone. I mean, if you gather up all the splinters of the cross of Christ throughout all the Middle Ages, you could probably build five or six huge mansions down in River Oaks. The cross is gone, so it could only happen at one point in time, and that is that the sins of the world were nailed to the cross so that the legal sin penalty was paid for at the cross for everybody. That's unlimited atonement. But it doesn't make any, that didn't make anybody saved. Because everybody still has two problems. They're spiritually dead and they don't have righteousness. Spiritually, the spiritual death problem and the righteousness problem are only solved when we, in time, when we trust in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, that's what he's talking about here. At that point of your faith in Christ, you're made alive together with him. And it's also at that point, as we've seen in our study in Romans, that you're, you receive the imputation of righteousness. So sin isn't the issue at gospel hearing. You don't have to repent of your sins. It never says that for the believer. The whole gospel of John is written to those who need to believe in Jesus. 96, 97 times it says believe in Jesus. It never says repent. The issue is believing in Jesus because if you don't, you're still condemned. You're still in a state of spiritual death, and you're still in a state of unrighteousness. The penalty's paid, but the consequences of that paid penalty have not been realized in your experience until you believe in Jesus. And only when you believe in Jesus is that applied, and then you're regenerate. And then you're declared righteous. So, Colossians 2, 13 says that, Though you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together with him because he had forgiven or canceled that word. Charizomai is also used of canceling of a debt. So it really fits with what's going to come up in verse 14. Having, because he has already canceled the trespasses. Now we'll get to verse 14 next time, but this is so important. This is our wealth in Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us in Christ, all that we have, the riches that we have that begin with understanding that the power of the sin nature is broken and that all sin in our life is positionally forgiven so that we can have a relationship with you and so that we can have eternal life and that we are made alive together with Christ because the sin has been canceled. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain by simply trusting in Christ, believing Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that as the Lamb of God who... He is the one who took away the sins of the world, unlimited atonement. Father, we thank you for this, and we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied. In Christ's name, amen.